0: morning. day, Hello. Hi. At any time of the day, whenever you listen to our podcast, it's bloody good to have you here and we really appreciate it. Now, I've taken a few days to record this intro and I've sat on it. This conversation is one that you can actually check out on our YouTube channel. So go search Humans of Agriculture on YouTube if you want to watch it. We've broken this week's episode into two parts. I'm sitting down with a fella called Clancy McKay and... His story and honestly what he's been through by the age of 27 is just incredible and I think chatting with Clancy it's kind of off the back of these conversations that it's like what what really stuck with me and I think for him it's this perseverance, the word resilience gets thrown out so much, but his ability to overcome challenges and see the good side of life and the learnings from it and what he calls trials is just truly extraordinary. As we'll touch on in this conversation, his Childhood and upbringing is probably unlike many people. For me, it was worlds away from anything I could imagine. I can't even begin to understand what it's like to live in Australia without running water um, and electricity to your house. But he did it alongside his three brothers, and today he's at Marcus Oldham, he's on a scholarship. He has big dreams for the future, so let's just jump straight into this first part of the conversation. You're joining us on Waterung Country in our little office there in Geelong. I'm here with Clancy McKay. Clancy McKay, what I like to do when I kick it off, um, a big part through the Australian Rural Leadership Program and I guess understanding a bit more about Indigenous culture, which we might even touch on a little bit today, is to acknowledge the country we're on. And so we're here on Wadawurrung country and their their local crew actually have an office just like next door to us here, which is really cool. Um, And one thing I love about the Wadawurrung mob at the footy last year. I loved it, how they did a welcome, but they talked about um, storytelling, which is obviously a huge part of what we do. And they said that, like, here on this country but on lands right around Australia, Indigenous Australians have used stories to pass on knowledge, create connection and yeah, share wisdom yeah. for tens of thousands of years and hundreds of generations. And I'm excited to sit down with you today, mate, and hear a little bit about your story. See if I can tell a, tell a few stories. <laughs> And I reckon, well, from what I've heard, you are 27, but I reckon you've lived for a few men already.
1: Yeah, I had <laughs> a few battles, that's for sure. Um, yeah, so you want us to sort of start from, from the bottom, sort of where, where I grew up and. Well, I'd love to know. So we in Geelong, we don't get to
0: do too many of these episodes face to face. So what brings you down to Southern Australia?
1: To Marcus, yeah. Um, so basically growing up as a kid, I, I um, Robbie and Timmy McGavin, I'd heard a lot of stories about. About what they were able to do after going to Marcus, and um, my dad was used to be neighbours with Bob and Gavin, their father, and they were really good mates. And, and Robbie and Timmy used to work for my dad um, off and on. So basically, yeah, my old men would tell me how how amazing these boys were and what they were able to achieve. And so I always had this had this idea in my head that Marcus was this amazing place, and if you went there, I'd be able to do do great things after going. Um, I never, never, like, I never thought that I would actually go there. And it was the last year I was driving, um, driving back north to do another year. I was like, I think I was going through Longreach and I was like, late RV. And I just think of business, think of business, like, how am I going to set myself up? I know nothing about accounting or anything like that. How am I going to basically get out of this trend of just working for every dollar? Um, so I messaged them guys and I feel like an idiot doing it now. I messaged Robbie and Timmy. And I said, um, I hadn't actually seen them for for a long time because my old man, uh, when he passed away, Timmy was actually the executor of my dad's will. So we had a fair bit of connection with Robbie and Timmy through that. Um, so I had that connection again. And, and so I reached out messaged them. I said, listen, fellas, I, I really want to sort of start setting myself up. What should I do? I want to learn about business. And, Straight away, go to Marcus Oldham, mate. You need to go to Marcus Alderman. And I was like, oh, you're an idiot. <laughs> Robbie's the chairman of the <laughs> college for one. And, I, yeah, I felt silly, eh? And I was like, geez, I, do I actually fit that mold? You know, that was because I was just such a wild, wild kid at school and didn't really think that I would fit in down here. And I, I was definitely wrong once I once I got accepted and I landed a amazing scholarship, the Carl Scholarship, through Aunt Dennis and, and Jill Conway. Like that was just game changer for me. So yeah, once I got down here and like, even after like, I'm through halfway through the second trimester now, I just feel like I've got that much more confidence and I've got these big ideas for next year. Um, I feel like I could go and attack them now and I've got enough, enough of a uh, knowledge to pull them on, you know? Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm loving that. It's, uh, it's definitely been a, been an open for me. So that's how I've ended up in Geelong here yeah, in the cold country <laughs>
0: It is very cold at the moment. And
1: I think what's really cool, I'm a market
0: student and, and I think there there's, it's an interesting network once you kind of sink your teeth into it, but it's funny, like seven days is a long time in the world, I think, um or ten days ago you did you you got to speak at the cocktail party for all scholarship recipients, and off the back of that, I had several people reach out to me going, "There's this person you need to speak to. they have the most incredible story, they're incredibly humble, haven't talked about it a
1: lot, yeah um, yeah. And then a few days later, up you pop. And- yeah, yeah. <laughs> so- it's, it's, um, it's cool. Eh? And I, I never thought I'd be on a podcast and it was just a few people talking to me there at that thing. And I was like, geez, you know, like that, that would be cool to tell my story in depth, you know, and, and sort of, uh, put the spotlight on the industries I've been in and sort of give them a bit of, um, a bit of a rep too, you know, cause there's some amazing things out there that no one, like you say, no one talks about. and. And um, to sh- uh, shine a light on that would be cool, you know. And um, glad you give me the opportunity. Yes, mate. The microphone's always here. I'd love to know how you're feeling at this
0: point in time.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, not not too bad. it eh? feel, feels weird. Um, yeah, it's always weird talking about yourself. I feel. Um, yeah, so we'll see how we go. But yeah, I'll um, I'll poke through it, and yeah. We'll get there. Now we've got, I've got something. I've got these
0: cards and they're from another fellow that runs a podcast over in the US. It's called the Diary of the CEO Conversation Cards. Yep. I want to pull a card at some stage. Do you want to do it? Whenever you want. Yeah, whenever you want. You decide.
1: Yeah, we can go one now if you want.
0: Oh, and we both answer the question?
1: Yep. Sounds sounds good. Then you can, well, we can work out.
0: You'll get to know a little bit about me. I'll get to know a little bit about you. Pick a
1: card, any card i feel like a magician what does that say <laughs> um do you remember a moment when you realized that you loved your job and uh and when was the last time you hated your job That's a good one
0: Cheers! what a way to start
1: <laughs> yeah so uh so i'm asking you that well do you want
0: to go first and then i'll i'll do it as
1: well um do you remember a a moment when you realised you, that you loved your job? Well, I've always grown up in the bush, and I guess like my job's always been a different role. You know, like um, just from from either being a contractor or, or you know, breaking in horses, or when it come to chopping mustering. You know, so. I've loved every bit of it, but at the same time, I've always been a gypsy, you know. Like, I, um, I would stay in one thing and then I'd go on to the next and i always bounce between. That's what keeps me fresh is just been the ability to be able to do all these things for certain times in the year and, and it keeps my mind racing. But meanwhile, if I, if I've got to fly all year and just muster cattle all year by the end of the year, I'm really burnt out and worn out um so yeah i I guess i've always loved every bit of it um but yeah like 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 as you say if you stay in the one thing too long you're sort of you get sour on it you know you need change and and need to be learning new things and whatnot so that's what keeps me fresh um when was the last time you hated your job um i've never really hated any any of the things i did um i i definitely got sour by staying in the one place i had trouble staying in big companies and whatnot i I just love the Idea of being a contractor, and I'm here for three months. Then I'm over here for three months, and I'm meeting all these different people, different styles of working cattle, or different breeds of cattle, different country. Like I'm big on just seeing, seeing Australia, and and seeing all the different parts of it. And I definitely fly, and I've seen a lot of the uh, Queensland and the territory. I've been so lucky um, to to tap into that. So hopefully that answers answers it. Yeah, a fair bit of mindset on that.
0: Uh, I'll go. I'll keep it short and sweet. Last time I remembered I love my job, I reckon, is little moments like this where I think it's, um, you get the chance to sit down with people who, like, even when people have a platform and they might be well known, you get a glimpse into people's lives through. I guess understanding a little bit more about what has actually shaped them and so you can go and chat business with people but if you understand the human behind what they do, I reckon that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that's- definitely, yeah. Um, no, I love our, our personal and and uh, like the connection you can make through this. You know, like you say, this is a conversation. It's not, it's not like we're in some formal meeting or anything. It's it's good just being able to sit down and talk, I think.
0: <laughs> we've tried three different locations. Yeah, so we've tried three different we locations. <laughs> we're on, yeah. And the last time I hated, uh, I reckon – I think the, well, the moment, the first thing that comes to me was, it was one of my like early jobs and I got put in a position. I was sitting alongside my boss at the time and we were being dishonest in front of a customer, like promising things that we couldn't do. Yeah. And that honestly, like I ended up resigning from that job that afternoon because I hate, I hated that.
1: Yeah, I, I can relate to that. eh? like just, yeah so hard i I feel like i'm very honest and i get uncomfortable if you if you can't um like you say can't pull off what you're saying or something i know what you mean yeah so mate let's let's chat about
0: we've got a few photos which i think we'll be able to share with people at different times might even uh if people are more of a visual watcher they can check it out on youtube and we might try and throw some of the photos in there. there yeah that'd be cool but i'm fascinated about your story tell me what was
1: you grew up in the Northern Territory. What's your earliest memory around agriculture? Uh, yeah, that's a hard one. eh? we 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 just so we I grew up on a place called Mount Min Station, which is about three hours southeast of Catherine. And um, my parents had brought it as a uh bear block. So it used to be part of Mountain Valley, which was owned by Ben Tapp back then. And and my parents went through the process of getting it subdivided off and it was just this bare rough block, you know, it had no fences, nothing. Um, so we wheeled in there in a the caravan and and picked a good good spot in Miami and talked to the Aboriginals there and, and worked out where it would be above the floodline and whatnot, and they, they were really good to us there. We i got some real fond memories of growing up as a kid in the communities around there because um, they used to always come fishing. We had a big Roper River used to run right through our place just down from the house there, um, and it was unreal barramundi fishing, and so we had a lot to do with them, and I guess so. For the first couple of years, we pulled that caravan in there and just put it, set it up on top of the hill, and there was no power, no water, no telephone, and we used to just go down, get a load of water, and bring it up from the rover river or whatever. And that's how we lived for the first few years until we could build a house and get formed there. Um, So I remember growing up rough and just just being like, to me, it wasn't rough; it was just normal. But it was just just the freedom, like the things we used to do when we were kids. There was unbelievable. Like we did school there from Alice Springs, which is. I think it was like 14 hours away through HF radio. So we'd have times that we had to talk on the HF radio with our with our teachers and whatnot. Um so so we'd do class from maybe eight until eleven at the most. So the rest of that was just freedom and and mum and dad were that busy, so we just run wild, like my brother and I, uh John. um our older brother Alex, he ended up getting getting sent away to boarding school down in Alice. So we um we sort of missed old Ali a bit there and then. But yeah, we used to just go hunting. That's a lot of the memories I got is just hunting of little slug guns. Eh? We would just go out and hunt crows and go down to the river, which was right there. And looking back, it's amazing that we uh, didn't get eaten by crocs. Like we were just John and I would do the silliest things. Uh, eh? down in that river like fishing and just swimming in little muddy holes off the edge of the water. Like just so stu- stupid looking back. But we were bush kids. We were very careful too. Like we would see a big muddy hole and billabongs. We would love swimming in them. So we'd. Get sticks and drag them and make sure there's no crocs and stuff like that. But just, just stupid, eh? Just <laughs> silly, silly little kids, eh? Incredibly practical, eh? Yeah, we'd love, we love catching snakes, like big olive pythons, like they're the big monsters up there. They get sort of, I don't know how big they'd get, well over three meters. Some of them, and we'd wrestle them. Like memories of that, like just stuff like that. Mum, uh, mum was terrified of snakes, and we'd bring these snakes home, and <laughs> and um yeah, it's, it's funny looking back, and hey, we we're so wild uh, the um, and that—that's sort of what led us, led us to leave the territory after 13 years. Was still, we moved down to Kandawinia. And That was because mum and dad, like Jock and Jock and Kerry, sort of believed that we needed to be more exposed and and um, get a get a proper education and be around people. Like we were sort of the last stop on the end of the road. After us, there were sort of communities, and then rope a bus Store. Um and yeah, we just never really seen anyone and that was I think like we loved it. But um yeah, our parents and that just worked so hard um building that place up around us. By the time we left it was amazing, you know, beautiful gardens and, and that we got a house from abandoned prawn farm. My old man got it on um cut it off the stilts and trucked it all the way there and, <laughs> and built it built it up and um yeah, it was amazing that place when we left it, you know, it was a hard block but it was just beautiful and it? it was home and always always will be, you know. i got so many memories of that place. So what did
0: your parents do like to lead them
1: to down that path? I'd like, lead them there. Yeah. Um, well, my old man, he had done a lot of time in the territory. Um, he was really close with the Fishers, Fisher family, who I'll talk about later. Um, so he went to boarding school with Alan Fisher, who was sort of his best mate. And so he had done up and he'd done a couple of years up uh on a place called Mary River for an old fella who was sort of sort of like a potty dodger. they were um Back in those days, like my old man was born in 1947, so I'm talking sort of in the 60s, they'd um, spend a lot of time going out with the Aboriginal crew and whatnot and they'd go out into the neighbour's country and coach a muster. So they'd have a little handful of cows, get a little handful of clean skin cows or whatever together, so they might add 40 or 50, and then just go out, track cattle, and, and build a big mob up and then bring them back to Mary River Station and they'd do all that on Brumbies. It was just all Brumbies they were caught. They'd Brumby run, break in the Brumbies. So Wild wild times, eh um and um so he had a deep love for the territory, um so yeah, he always wanted to get back there, and his old man um and he's uh and had left country to his the brothers there' three of them, so Jock, Michael and Ewan, and they all had little little pieces of country um around bark Alden, um Alden, and Jericho, yeah, so Dad had that little place called Mulgrave, and that's one of his neighbors with the McGavins, yeah, with Bob and. And Mum had sort of met the, I mean, he was a cut horse trainer and he was a fair bit older than my mother. But, yeah, um, that's sort of how they, mom had a love for horses and that's sort of how they got connected. And, and eventually it come time, I think it was after the, like uh, when the wool wool um, board crashed or whatever it was, that um, put down a lot of sheep. Um, so after that they sort of thought, oh, well, we need a change. And and my two brothers had, were on the ground then. They were born in, in Longridge. That's when they moved to the Territory and, and um, eventually, yeah, seeing the opportunity to get Mount McMahon and, and get it subdivided and, and pull it on, like huge, huge risk and a lot of guts to try and do something like that. My mum would have been, well, she was probably 21 when she had Alex and then Jono. So, yeah, she would have been about 27, had three little boys and um, and trying to like live in, you can see in the photos, they're living really, really hard and, and trying to pull that on. I just credit to them. Eh? It was amazing. Eh? And my, I remember my old man would go away for... In the wet season, because we get flooded in a lot of mountain men during the wet, and, and we're on that big sand ridge. So it was like an island, and we'd get food flowing into us, you know, through the choppers and whatnot. Dad would be gone for two or three months to keep the money rolling in, building sheds, building yards. Like he's really capable of building things. And so that's what would keep the money ticking, was the old man be gone. So we wouldn't see the old fellow for ages, you know. And, and um, yeah, it's just funny, ages, eh? hard times. It was so normal to us, you know. It's just how we, um, how we, how we went about things, eh? It's good.
0: Was it around the time that you ended up down in Gundawindi that I guess your perspectives changed that the way you guys were living up there wasn't how
1: every kid kind of grew up? Yeah, I definitely had trouble adjusting. Um, I was just, I was a wild little fellow and I fell in with a wild crowd. I They weren't a bad crowd, they were good kids and whatnot, but I was just never, never had a full time teacher stand up in front of me and, and always been told what to do. And I was just, I was, I was very independent. Like we were so independent because we just had so much freedom when we were, when we were little and, um, yeah, so I had trouble with that, and uh, I was always I, I had I was always in trouble. I'd, I'd maybe not real bad trouble until my parents actually split up. So I'll walk you through Gundawindi. I suppose we moved down to Gundawindi and and the plan was to put us kids through school and and take it a bit easier. My old man had imported a quarter um, stallion, which was a duster scamp back in the seventy one seventy two from America, because he lived over in America and was a cut horse follower and and done on over there as well. Um, so. When we moved to the territory, we were out of that game, you know, because he, there was no access to that, but we still had all them amazing horses and dad continued to breed them. So the plan was to get back to Gundawindi, get more in touch with our horses again, get us boys into school and and spend more time with us kids because our, our parents just worked so hard we'd only see them like morning, night, you know, they were gone all day. So um that was the plan. Take it a little bit easier. We brought a little thousand-acre place down there. Um but at, like when we got there, my parents, same old thing, seen opportunities and one of the opportunities was to open a butcher shop up in Gandhi, and then um, which my mother run, um, and then my old man was uh, build a feedlot on our place called Newstead, and was basically crossbreeding first crossing uh, black and Dorper sheep with our Merinos or whatever to get, still get a bit of wool, and then um, and and grain feeding them to basically um, offer a grain fed lamb product, and they were selling it all over, like um, all around Australia, um, and at one point they were selling it even to China through act so Beef. You know, it was really it was a good business, but same thing. Just they were working so hard. Mum would drive all the way to town, um, get up like extremely early. You know, same thing. We weren't seeing much of her, and then we weren't seeing much of dad. They just work, work, work. And um, it was really dependent on, on the climate. You know, if it didn't rain, we had, and we had some bad droughts for we Gundy. And, and yeah, just the business wasn't, wasn't working, you know, and the stress that it put on them has sort of split them apart. So when they when they split up, mum mum went uh, moved to Lismore and, and started studying uni again. And um, she started in a few different things, got offered, I think it was bioscience, and then got really high marks in that, and then they offered her law. And she's like, oh, law, I'll pull that on. Ended up receiving honors in, um, in law and is now uh, a partner in a law firm at Yammer on the coast there. So it was pretty amazing, amazing for her to pull that on. You know, 45, incredible woman, eh? Um, Dad went back to the Territory and, and Queensland was a contract wiener breaker and contract muster. So, yeah, he was just literally loaded up all his horses in the truck and we sold that place at Gundy and got out of that sort of with – with um a little bit more, you know, paid the debt off and, and got got a bit a bit in their pockets and whatnot, and was able to, able to go their separate ways. And then I stayed in Gundy with my oldest brother Alex, who was at that time had done his uh, butcher's trade to run the butcher shop. And same thing, hard work and father Alex really like he didn't end up in the bush like like John and I, but just an extremely hard worker and whatever he put his mind to, could to, could pull it off. I mean, I'm always impressed by him. Um. So yeah, I just had freedom. I'd I'd been um, asked to leave uh, boarding school. I was um I actually went a year as the divorce was going on. Went to boarding school in Warwick at Scott's PGC and it was an awesome school. But I was just wild, like blowing a little bit and um and drinking and doing all the things to rebel. I was really just trying to rebel. I was just so just I was so upset that my parents were going there several ways, and and my two brothers had always sort of left home. You know, were, John, I was up north here. He went to our College and sort of went away and. And um, I was sort of the only one left, you know. So I was just rebelling hard and and hanging out wild dudes. Like I was just spent a lot of time suspended. Um, if I wasn't suspended, I was wagging. Or when I was there, I was just playing up, you know. So it was just a character, eh? Um, and I, um, so that was when I was like thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. But but so yeah, so I'd done like one a term and a bit in year ten, and then uh, was just having a lot of trouble. I would move back to Gundy with Alex then, and and I was having a lot of trouble. So. I... Joined this um, Get Set for Work program, it was called. It was like a GTT course in Gundawindi. And um, basically, they just sent you out on work experience with plumbers. I went plumbing for a while, which was a rare thing. Just good um, at talking shit, are um, Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, so, done all these different trades. And then I actually, I, I was obviously having no, no fun doing that. It was interesting, but not for me. So, I, I got sent up to my mother's parents' place up at Middlemount to do a bit of a work program up there. and. And um, and I just loved the bush. I'd gone up there, Brandon Brandon calves and whatnot a fair bit for him. And um, and my old granny uh, Rose, she's like, "You've got to go to a college. You've got to get something behind you." And I'm glad she said that. And I was like, "A ah, college? I don't need to go to bloody a college. Like <laughs> hang around all them rare critters." And um, did so- you look? Because obviously you'd gone through school. It was were you were you bad at school, or you just didn't enjoy that sitting down all day and. I was, I was, I was just always rebelling. I guess I was the the class clown. I guess always the funny guy, and <laughs> um, and staring teachers up. And I would try to a, to a point. Like I'll, I'll so sound silly, but I was smart. You know, I I could keep up with everything. But I guess I just, yeah, I hated being told what to do. I just had this rebellious side, you know. And I was trying to basically, um. Stir my parents up as much as I could for <laughs> for everything that had happened. Um, yeah, looking back, it's silly, game, eh? But it's just who I was. I was just, <laughs> wild. So I thought you're doing Looked a pretty good job of it Yeah, I had, I had long hair, had the longest hair, horrible rat's tail, and, and I had a spike through my ear at one point, a stretcher through my ear. That's how, that's how wild I got. So, um, to look, look where I am now, I'm just like, who was that guy, you know? But, um, yeah, so anyway, I ended up at AgCon, so that's sort of, and I got sent to A like this should straighten him out, you know, it's more hands-on and whatnot. And I and I I got there and I thought, there's no chance I'm gonna last here. First weekend got in a big fight with this older kid and and went to knuckle, end up in a heap of trouble and whatnot. And I was like, I'm not gonna last a month this place, you know. Um but anyway, long story short, I met this girl and and that sort of got me on the right path. And I started working for a lot of um, a lot of look we had family friends and then just just different people day working. And getting to go out and master on weekends and earning money and then I just I just fell back in love with the bush, you know, and and got that real hunger for it again. So I I'd done my two years at um at A College. Went back up north with my old man for the for the first year out and um was I'd done a heap of horse breaking with him and then went wean breaking with him at Brunette Downs, big big place on the Barclay there. Um and which was which was the best thing he ever did me and the old man blew like buggery but um geez I learned so much off him amazing cattleman and horseman eh? and then just like his style of breaking wieners and educating wieners and was it was crazy like we'd break in twelve hundred wieners a day we'd do six hundred in the morning and six hundred in the afternoon educating them and um basically we'd have this system we'd do in the yards um to teach them to flow and roll and all like it was a really specific system no dogs just two horses dad and I. And um and then we'd take them outside into a bit of a funny lane and then we'd just spear them out into the open paddock. And and normally if it was a good year, there's a heap of feed there, but these wieners are sort of three days off mum. We wouldn't wouldn't touch them otherwise, they were too fresh. Um and yeah, I just would I'd spear that lead out of that gate um to dad and he'd sort of go out and that that they'll be running, you know, these little wieners think, oh freedom. And my old man would just roll that lead and it will be like a big, big ball that'd just be sort of spiraling out there. And uh, my job was just to get all the tail out and then come and join him and we'd have our 600 and then we'd just work opposite each other and basically settle those weaners down because we'd done so much work in the yard, which took us about, I say, a lot of work. It was probably 30 minutes at the most, 40 minutes in the yard. When we'd get them out there, we'd settle them down and all of a sudden they'd start to feed and you'd, you'd sort of migrate them for probably 4K or so, let them feed out and whatnot, and slowly coach the tail along. And then the trick was, once they were full, was to get them to camp, which is extremely hard. And if you could get that mob to um to settle down and all start to camp under the trees, um, you had them. Like they'd sit down and think about everything you had just done with them. And when those cattle got up from chewing their cud and whatnot, they were different animals and we would just march them like we'd have them stretch out for a k. Dad would always be up on the point, and then I'll just make sure the tail was connected and nothing was sort of feeding out in the wings. But you'd just have them just hypnotized, eh? And yeah, just amazing stockman, eh? Like what he what he was able to pull off, and so that sort of set me up for flying later on, which I'll talk about. Just just a lot of the stuff he taught me with cattle and reading cattle. What's the trick there? Like, because that
0: doesn't seem like a lot of time at all. And, it, yeah, and yeah, it's very quick. And we've got, I guess, like all sorts of listeners. Some people who never would have experienced anything like that. Like, like the closest some people might have come is actually like domesticating a dog and training a dog. Yeah, like, yeah. How do you actually build that
1: connection? And what are the tricks that your old man taught you about? Animal husbandry. Yeah, it's, um. I guess he just spent a lot of time just like, like when I was talking about his early days of coaching mushroom, like those guys had no helicopters or anything. So if you didn't understand those cattle and were able to read when you had like a big, big clean skinned bulls running into your mob and Um, If you weren't able to see that mob and understand that that fellow's like he's cunning, their mob balls are so cunning, they slowly work their way out to the edge of the mob. If you weren't smart enough to to get cattle around him and cover that old ball, he'd break from the mob. So all of a sudden, you've got one or two men that got to go throw that ball or try and get that ball back in that mob so you've you've got to be ten steps ahead all the time, and that's when it comes in reading cattle you 've got to really know what they're thinking and and they'll tell you everything by the way their where their ears are their eyes are the way they're facing um if their heads up like pricked up in the mob, you just know that they're um, they're thinking about doing something, so you 've got to be a step ahead, and that's how their old followers were so so handy they they used to be able to control these these mobs and um, they didn't have the opportunity of, oh, we'll call the chopper. The chopper can come and bring those 20 wieners back. That never existed, you know, and that's when the, the stockmen were unbelievable back then. Um, so I guess he brought all that with him and then he'd just done so much time on on thinking about how to educate these wieners in the best way and what he was looking for when, when it come to, like, flow and, and then being able to give it. You can really numb cattle down, so... I'm not pointing any fingers at anyone, but if you were to go in there and, and um, take some really hard dogs in there and, and sew your dogs on and chew chew those cattle and, and bite them a heap and whatnot, what are you teaching that mob? You're teaching those weaners that nowhere is safe except if they're just crushed up in a little ball, in a little tight ball. And then right so that's all good. You go and try and walk them cattle outside. Those cattle are so scared to break from the mob or even flow and string out from the mob because you've chewed them so much you try and walk twenty k thirty k off those cattle like um you won't be able to do it you know you've you've taught them that that um they're that scared to break from the mob, so it's all about thinking what what and cattle love to string out you know when you think about cattle walk in on a pad to go to water, single file and whatnot water, and then when they go to feed out, they walk out on their little pads. And when they get to the spot they want to feed out then they spread out and they turn into thing. so if you're going to walk mobs in a big blob and whatnot you're sort of almost saying oh feed out you know like you let that wing sort of poke out towards you and and feed out you you you're teaching that mentality but if you keep them nice and narrow and strung out and thin you hypnotize them like it's in their nature they're happy to walk out when they're when they're skinny and single fly all. it's like so what did he teach me? Really, was just understanding them, you know. And it's the same when I when I went into the buffalo game. I'll talk about that. It was a whole different ball game that Normie Fisher taught me. And then the crocodiles. It's all instincts, you know. You got to understand how these animals work, and they're they're predictable because they 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 um their instincts will tell you. You know, you just got to learn to read them. Everything's about reading them and how do they how do they work and how do they operate? Yeah. So but I don't know if that really answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. It's fascinating to see you talk about it. and and you can see like. Look, I can see by looking at you, like you're like, visualising the animals, yeah, and you yeah, can yeah. see them there in front of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, it's weird. Eh? I get a bit on a tangent all the time when I'm talking about cattle and stuff. Eh? I just yeah, I love it. So, so while you're up in the territory on on this stint, was this where you started to ride Bronx and start to rodeo a little bit? Yeah, so I'd sort of started to get on a few when I was at Ag College. It was a good area, Central Queensland. So that was an Emerald when when the Emerald one was open, and i sort of started to get on a few and get the bug a bit. You know, get on saddle bronc horses. Um, so when I went up, up north with my old man, and, and, um, so that was the first year, at brunette, done a couple. And then the following year, I worked for my brother, Jono, who was only 21 and and created, um, a contracting team, you know, which is a big thing at 21 to try and pull on, have seven men underneath you and, and run a show, you know. And a lot of, a lot of people said to him in the early days, mate, you need more wet saddle blankets, you know, you're too, it wasn't that he was too green, he'd done the time, Jono, but it's just, oh, he's too young, this bloke, he doesn't know what he's doing. And, it was very uh, very ballsy, if I can say that, um, <laughs> for him to pull that on, and and um, he's done a, done a, a really well out of it. You know, he's been going for nine years. He's thirty this year, and and um, you know he always seems to pull it off. And he's a, he fences and and yard builds as well now, and he's very successful. Him and his partner Tony, you know, they've done done great things. So I love looking at them and seeing what they're up to, and um. Trying to remember the question. Oh, no, ro- you're ro- ro- on yeah. Uh, yeah. So so that year, uh, working for Jono, I, m- I managed to do quite a few in the golf you know, and got to go to some shows and just got so hungry for it. Now, got on a, a couple of bareback horses as well. And um, so the next year was the plan. I sort of got the bug. I ended up going and working for Hewitt Calico there for a little bit. And I, I just, I'd done a lot of rodeos, which was on there. They just brought Bagani at Mara and, and we're starting to really get the ball rolling with with building their their name. Um, so I got to do a lot of rodeos and I was just saved my chips and an opportunity come to go to America um, just on a three-month Estavita or whatever. And So I went over there um, and, um, yeah, which was America's where it's at. You know, like there's, you can do five or six in a weekend if, if you really want to go hard. You know, there's so many and, and you don't have to travel. In Australia, you've got to travel. You drive 13 hours to some of these shows all the time, you know, and it's just so expensive. You can't really make money of it over here. Over there, it's a career. Those fellows who are... In the top fifteen in the world, they they've made a career out of it and it's amazing, and they're just the most elite of the elite. So I went over there and um, I went really hard. I spent spent a bit of time. I I landed in Cody, Wyoming, and, and um, end up becoming really good mates with a fella called Robbie Dawson, and and um, we decided to go up to uh to Kendra on a bit of a run. Done a few radios at Cody, and then we went to Canda and worked in the feedlot. Done a few up there, um. So that was a bunch of fun. And then I sort of had, I must have had about five weeks left on my, on my time there before I had my flights home. So I, we went back to, back to Cody Wyoming and um, went really hard. I had sort of, there was a month left. Cody Woman's a really unique place. It's, uh, I think it was one of the first rodeos, but it's 90 days of rodeo. So it starts on the first of June, goes right through till the end of August and has a set of finals. So every single night you can get on Bronx. Every night. Every night. Yeah. It's a full rodeo and it's like, it's like clockwork. It's so, well, run two hours every night. They just run every event. It's, it's it's amazing place. And if you're a young fella trying to earn stripes and get on a heap of horses, which is how you get good, you've got to get on a wedge of wedge of horses and just because you don't see see much of the ride, it's eight seconds, but you don't see much of it. It happens so quick and the adrenaline. So the more you can get on, the more you slow down time and understand um, what your job is. So yeah, at one point there when we got back there for August. Um, I think it was like 35 days I got on like 40 something horses like I sometimes Maury Tate would ask me to get on like a couple of night if they were a bit short on riders and I was just I was, I was all busted up my legs were all busted up like all calcified from getting on so many and I remember I've got my left arm stomped on by this big sway back man it was all swollen And but I just had this mentality like I'm just going to ride every night and, and try and make these finals and then try and win the average buckle or whatever and do that, and um, so yeah, that was that was a big thing for me. Was just going to knuckle over there and just showing that I had guts, and people took notice, you know. And, and um, which sort of eventually led me to getting that scholarship to go down into Western Texas College uh, the following year, because um, I had these connections, and they're like, "This guy really wants it," you know. He's he's got ticker, um, so that that sort of set me up. Tell me a bit about the scholarship. Uh yep so so basically um I landed that one at Snyder and a lot of good Australian fellows go over to Snyder the coach there is a fellow called Greg Rhodes and he he loves Aussies you know so that's a massive thing for us just having a connection there with Greg um so yeah it's basically um a lot of them schools in the south and that they're, that they're not every college has a rodeo team but the, but down there it's definitely more common so basically they'd give you a scholarship or you'd pay to go to the school which, whichever happened um, and you'd have to study something, whether it was English or whatever you wanted to do and we used to all study boiler making because it would give us thirteen points or something which was enough points to be on the rodeo team so <laughs> so we'd all disco baller making and we we got along like this. We had a real good um instructor when I was there, and um so we'd just boiler making and and he was real lenient on us too, so if we had rodeos we were going to it wouldn't wouldn't sort of worry him too much. Um, and, yeah, basically you had to practice Tuesdays and Thursdays, I think it was. You'd go to practice. They had their own stock and and the boys would get on bulls and then the Broncos would get on broncs, the ropers would rope, vice versa. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we'd practice. And then not every weekend but um, every second or third you would have a college rodeo so you'd go yeah. and verse all uh, the colleges in the, in the rodeo teams and, and like, um, Greg would pick pick people who are riding well to represent the college, like pick th- two in each event or whatever and, Basically, if you got enough points, I think I never even finished a full season there because my old man got sick. But if you got enough points, like your college got enough points, you'd go to the finals. And, and, and if you won the finals, it's a big deal, big, big name for the school. And then, um, and they'll set your name up to go into the pros, you know, like a lot of these boys were already riding pro rodeo over there. But yeah, you, you, you get that ticket on your thing winning the college finals, big deal, um, over there. Um, but yeah, so, so I, I was, I'd done the college thing for probably nearly six months thinking back. Um, and then my old man got diagnosed with cancer, um, which, which, which was misdiagnosed. It was a real shame. It started off as a little, little sun cancer in his ear and they'd cut it out and, um, and they sent away and said, Oh, we got it all and whatnot. But they hadn't, they'd missed the tiniest bit and it basically got in, got in the nerve and followed the nerve over the top of his brain and then just spread. Um, so but the, and, and his face actually dropped down and it was misdiagnosed as, um, Bell's palsy because it blocked a nerve here so that, it, it dropped down, and Bell's palsy is meant to last for three to six months at the very most. And this went on for like a year and a half. And he went to all these specialists, and I just don't know how, but they just couldn't pick that cancer up. You know, and by the time they did land it, was up in uh, up and down. And this really good fella, Dad, had gone and seen. He was up in Katherine working, and gone and seen an old doctor that we had when we were in the territory, and um, he said, "I can't diagnose a jock, but I'll, um, but I, I know a bloke that will." I don't believe believe in coincidence I think there's something really wrong here because he's in pain you know it's hurting Bell's Paws he's not meant to hurt you know he's in pain all this nerve pain and whatnot um so he sent to down and I might picked it up in 10 minutes said mate you got viral neuro spread or something else called I'm not exactly sure of what the what the actual cancer's name was and um anyway yes yeah, so this all happened while I was over at college and getting the phone call from him to say that he'd had that it it, it rocked me you know because i was like what what bloody um because we were like we didn't really know what it was but i never thought it'd be that serious you know like didn't realize it was it was so so savage and and um basically he rang up said listen i oh, bloody um it's all from my brain and whatnot they're going to try radiation and see what we can do so he was getting radiation treatment i said right I'll, I'll i'll be home you know I'll, I'll talk to the coach and i'm coming home He's like, no, mate, bloody stick it out. And I could have stuck it out for two or three years over there, you know, like on that scholarship, you know, just you just get better and better. And I was young enough to stay there for that long and and I had a five year sports visa through the college, which is un unreal. Um anyways, but I was like, bugger that, you know, I've got to get home. And um, so I was so I ripped home as soon as I could. Um, landed and I rang my two older brothers and I said, geez, we need to get, get dad somewhere to pull up, you know, and get him a base. And my old man liked Richmond because it was sort of uh, not far from Jono where Jono lived. It was only about an hour away from Jono and it was close enough to Townsville if he needed treatment and and whatnot. So we so we um sort of planned on getting a spot there and I was like, how can I make money really quick um, using the stuff I know um, to help the home men out? And I remember when I when I was working in the Gulf, I had uh, done a bit of work with the follicle Rivers, a bit of a legend up there in the Gulf, uh, flying-wise, and, and I was pretty good at Rivers. And I said, mate, would you – would you you and John Logan be, you know, take me on if I went and done my shopper license? Um, and they're like, yeah, 100%. So I ripped through that, done that in four months, which is crazy, like like really quick. You know, it was four and a bit months and you got seven exams to pass. But if you fail them, you can eventually get locked out for three months and that's how some of them poor fellas get stuck there for so long trying to get their license. And I was just lucky, had a good run, got my exams done. Just lucky. <laughs> um- <laughs> I-
0: well, I just want to like jump in there for two and It's only a little question. But like – so. You're you're looking at how you can earn money to help support the old man, exactly, but yeah. the
1: chopper license costs a fair fortune as well. Yeah, um, hex debt. Um, so there was a new thing that had just come out through TAFE, and they offered a – basically they'll pay for your license. You'd have to pay twenty percent straight up on interest on on your license, which is about twenty grand. It cost me about ninety grand. It's a lot of, a lot of money. And if you'd done it off your own bat, you could probably do it for seventy or a bit less. You know, if you if you had no trouble with it. Um, so, so I done it through Hex. Um, that's how, which was really lucky for me, you know, without it, I wouldn't have been able to get it. Um, so that, that was really lucky doing it through Hex and getting going. Um,
0: was it a, was it a big motivator too, knowing that I guess off the back of you getting that license that
1: you're able to then earn your keep in a quite a quick way? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And like, um, just, just. The people I went to work for, Barclay Helicopters, like I knew it was a really good company and I and I had that job secured. So if I could just do that license and, and get there, I knew the snow was so well effectively. I'd get rolling and start getting some good money coming through and be able to help the old man out and, and do all that. So, yeah, it was, it was a big motivator just having that in mind and that's probably why I hooked into it so quickly because I was just so hungry for it, you know. Like I really wanted to get it and um do that. And, yeah, I, I worked for them for four years, um, Barclay, four years. Yeah, it was roughly four years um and it was in 2020 that my old man passed away so he battled that cancer for a long time like um it was it was just it was horrible because his face had dropped down he never stopped working like he just kept weaning breaking like whether it was a brunette and then he went to newcastle walkers and by the end of it he was probably 65 kilo and this was the man who was 105 kilo big strong fit man you know and and by then when he actually died there was nothing left of me it was just bones and and um I always thought nothing. I always had this thing in my head, oh oh it can't get any worse, you know, something would happen. So his face had dropped down. Eventually they um they'd done some plastic plastic surgery to fix his mouth up, so instead of having the big droop, so picked his mouth back up and they're were, they were gonna try and fix his eye because he couldn't shut his eye, you know, and he's getting all this dust from work and cattle in his eye and whatnot. So eventually they just sewed his eye shut, which is horrible. So he had had his eye sewed shut like that. Um and I was like, It can't get any worse, you know? And um and eventually he just started losing more and more weight. And um, eventually the cancer had spread down and got into his throat and took his voice. So he could only talk in a very raspy whisper. So if you, so my dad had some really good mates that he loved talking to on the phone and, you know, some great mates he'd talk for an hour and a half to, you know. And when that happened, he lost all that. Like his mates couldn't understand. He was horrible. You know, they couldn't even understand what he was saying. And, and for a man that, you know, was, um, just was so loyal to his mates and not even being able to talk to them, that was that was hard on hard on him, not gonna imagine, but really hard on me too, you know. And even us boys, I talked to them. I mean, and we got good at deciphering what he was saying, but it was still extremely hard, you know, you talk in whispers and that was that was that was rough, eh? and the and same thing, oh, I can't get any worse and How'd you go like when with that mentality of like it can't get any worse and then these little things and you're seeing your old man like the slowly fade away um yeah, yeah it, was, it was really hard um but i i did i just kept putting walls up you know in my head um that i guess i never considered him dying you know cuz he was just just such a hard man and i just had so much respect for him you know um so i never never seen him I just always thought, oh, he's never going to die, you know, Um, which is just so stupid, you know. There was nothing. He had had radiation. He had had chemo. Chemo, he was remembering going to work and he was doing that chemo and he'd just be spewing, you know, like trying to saddle his horse and whatnot, like no power left to even get his saddle on. He had a system to where he'd have the stepladder and do all the stuff to get his saddle on. And Once he was on a horse, it was like he had all his power back, you know, because I'd love to show you this photo of him just before he died in Newcastle and his favourite mare, which I've actually got now, Sugar Sugar Shaker. Um, it's just an amazing photo, and he's just the old man's just skin and bone with his old hat on there. And he's just got a mobile of filtering through this gate. And it's like, you know, when he was on that horse, he had all his power back, he could do anything. He's an amazing horseman, you know, like bloody just, yeah, just really talented. Um, so yeah, it was, it was tricky. I just kept putting walls up, and I never thought he was gonna die, you know. And when he did die, it was, it was, um, that was a, I'll tell you about that too. It was, um, I was like, it was the start of start of 2020, um, February 2020. Um, anyway, so the cancer had gone into his throat. My and nine and he was actually at Richmond. He had finished the finished the 2019 season and I'd actually ripped up. I was flying. He rang me and said, oh, I've got to get down. I've got to get down to bloody back down there. Um, and, you know, I've got all these horses on and whatnot. And I said, well, I'll come give you a hand on me and I'll help you drive back or whatever. And um, I hadn't seen him for eight months or something, you know, and had no idea how bad it had got. And, um, so I, I caught a lift with a mate and back to Catherine and, um, met the old man in his truck the next day and he got out of the truck and there was nothing left. Like he was 70 kilo. Like just seeing that year, the cancer had just taken so much weight off him, you know, like bloody, there was nothing left of him. And it was just a huge shock, eh? And even giving the old man a hug, ain't eh? Just like it was, it was crazy, eh? Um, and I was like, yeah, thank God i come to help him, you know, drive these horses back. Um, and because he was just so so out of it too, like in his head, you know, he was just, buddy, just so unwell. Um, so yeah, I ripped. We drove back down and, and stayed at our mates. Picked his car up from he had a, a little car. Picked it up from Newcastle Waters, and then I took the truck and horses ahead of him, and he followed me out and, uh home at his own pace, pretty steadily. Um, I got back to Richmond, dropped all his horses off at our friends, the Fords, and and done all that, got him all organised, and then that was his that was his last year, you know, that was his his year done, and. He was so crook. I'm trying to remember if he was uh, what treatment he was getting then. But he was going to the hospital for something. He must have been doing a bit of chemo still or something then. Um, anyway, so yeah, the cancer had gone into his throat. January, I spent a little bit of time with him, and then February, seen him a little bit, and and he was like getting very close. Like you could tell, he was just starting to. I wouldn't say give up, but it was just getting too hard. You know, in pain, he just ate pain medicine. If he didn't have a penadol every two hours, and he meant to do all this stuff and four-hour things. But if he let it get too far, he'd spend a day and a half trying to catch up on pain meds to get back in the cycle. He had to have alarms set on his phone at night to get up and take pain meds. Um, otherwise, the pain was just too much for his face, just extreme, like aching and burning, I think, just terrible. Um, so yeah i was um i had this uh trip to japan planned with some mates to go snowboarding over there and um i'd seen him he got real crook had a bit of a scare so i ripped ripped up to um to richmond seen him just before i went and um all of us boys did us three brothers um seen him there and spent a bit of time with him and he had got out of hospital and he was feeling okay and i was like oh he's he's all right and i was going to japan for 10 days um so I went back to my mate's place and we were getting organized, about to leave. And then um, he, uh, he, John O rang me, a middle brother, and said, Oh, the old man's can't, can't swallow, he's so having a heap of trouble swallowing, can't eat. So he'd gone to the Richmond Hospital and they said, Oh, listen, the cancer's all through your throat. Like, um, we can feed you through a tube. And my old man being the proud man he was, he's like, bugger that, I'm not being fed through a tube. Um so he said, Well, I'll just die. And um so he just he just buddy checked himself in the hospital. John and I spent most of that time with him, which is amazing. And um I messed him, I said, Oh, I'll come back, the old man. He's like, Nah, mate, go to go to Japan, don't worry about me, I'll be right. And uh, I sort of regret not being there, I would have loved to be in there, eh? Because it was the um yeah, it was definitely hard. Um yeah, so he's he starved himself. I think I was like fifteen days. Far ahead. He's a fighter. Yeah, hard to talk about him. Basically, um, battle it, battle it. And he made his um his seventy-third birthday, I think, it was like on uh on Valentine's Day, you no. Know? He was on the eleventh of February. Made his birthday, um, and wouldn't take any pain meds, John I reckon. Like they kept offering, Oh, we'll will put you on morphine, you know, you'll just sign out. And he's like, No, I wanna make me birthday. Made his birthday and then um and then the pain was so much because he was starving and so thirsty, you know, wasn't allowed water or anything. Um they put him on on the on, uh, morphine and whatnot and he was just like a zombie then and then died on Valentine's Day, yeah. In February, which was funny, which is a good reminder, every Valentine's Day comes around. I'm like, oh, it's the old man's funny, Old man's thing, you know, so it makes me remember that. Um and, you know, I'm just that proud that, you know, what a fighter, ain't a battle for that long um so that all that all happened while i was in japan you know i think it was yeah he died while i was over there and it was hard being over there with me mates and i was having a bunch of fun but it's just playing on my mind i was just thinking about that and not being able to talk to him and he sent me this big message that i've got still you know and just like bloody you know when you have kids don't try and change you, they are and you just hope that they t- take the best out of you and all this stuff and it was really cool, you know, to have that have that message and then he's like, I gotta go, mate. And that's what he meant. Like, I'm, I'm dying or whatever. <clears throat> gotta clear me throat, eh? You're right, mate. It's incredible. That's an incredible message to get. Yeah, yeah, it was, eh? Um Yeah, it was just so cool. And I, I sent him one back and I said, Listen, oh, man, I'm lost, you know, I've been been flying for a few years now and I just don't know what I want to do and, and whatnot. And he said, mate, it'll all come, just buddy. Just, you know, just keep 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 going forward you know and chase chasing whatever you want to chase and and then that was it didn't talk to him didn't hear from him again you know and, and that's when he was just yeah he was fading out or whatever and didn't even have the strength to reply um so that was rough and i was talking to Jono the whole way through it and poor old johnny he's the only one there you know which was rough i feel bad bad for him after to go through all that <clears throat> anyway don't know why my voice is gone i'm right now i just can't no you're all right, mate it's um
0: yeah, absolutely fine.
1: Yeah, so, so sorry. Um, so we moved. Come back, we had the old man's wake, got him cremated, um, and his wake was amazing. You know, just had, had a big slide of, um, of his life, you know, all the steps through his life as a cut in Australia and bronc rider and all the things he had done and, and, and you know, meeting mum and the things they had achieved and it was cool, you know, and some of his best old mates come and some of like my, my brother and my mates came as well, which meant a lot, you know, like supporting us and it's good to look back on his life. And I guess that, that year I battled, eh? I, I, um, I just always, always take things on my own, which a lot of men do, you know, just like bloody, I'll get through this on my own. And, and I definitely got really depressed, you know, like bloody really down. And I just kept working. Like I just wanted to work. Like I, that's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to go to any events or see anyone. I was just really buried myself into work. And, and it was good, you know, Barkley helicopters kept me pretty busy. and when it was until I'm flying for them, I was trying to break in a few horses or ride a few of my own horses and stuff like that. And I was based up at Gregory Downs at that stage for on a Paraway place. And it was unreal. I had all my own space on the outstation. And yeah, that was, that sort of got me through it, I guess. And um, after that year, I um, I just started wanting to do my own thing. You know, I was bloody, i have always working for other people, you know, making other people money. And I really wanted to get back into the territory and see a lot of that. So that, that sort of, shifted me into going on an abn which opened a lot of doors for me as in i could go and fly for my good mate like i um ended up at Tennant creek flying for jack Ford, one of my good mates and got to see a lot of that alice springs country in the desert it's just beautiful down there and and um even over like uh rome in june fly for for a lady there pj knight and and um get to see all that amazing country around the Carnarvon gorge there and um and then the the main main people I had done a bit for was uh the Fisher family which is that I was talking about Alan and Dad being really good mates and doing all that all that coachmaster and whatnot and they had had a few places back up there and and their game was mainly buffalo you know they had had cattle as well but yeah they um they'd made all their money sort of through Buffalo and catching for a buffalo and old Alan was just a legend up there you know just uh, had it, had it down to a fine art so so I done 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 my time with old Jack. I'd done a bit of first round with Jack at um Tennant Creek. And then went up to um to Normy and and those guys to do sort of finish most of the year off with them. Um, which was unreal, eh? Like just you know, you you th- I'd already done a little stint with them when I was at Barkley. I'd gone and done wet season with Norman and, and collected croc eggs and done all that, which I'll talk about further as we go on and um and done a bit of Buffalo stuff. But yeah, I went up there this time and, and it was just solid on a day. Eh? Like we just we we're, we always, um, you've done a lot of coach yards. You'd, you'd set up yards and coach them all into the yards and, and have a team of catchers on the ground and, and get them into the, into the trap yards and stuff like that. And then other days, like when where we went out to a place called Remingini in Armandland Land there and it was a big contract that Normie had, um, snagged and basically you'd pay all the Aboriginal fellas out there the royalties to go and, go and catch all them buffalo and all the different areas out there. And, and you'd first thing in the morning, you'd have to go out there onto the floodplain because, all those old buffalo had been shot out and chased for killers, you know, to get meat and whatnot. So they were, buffalo are so intelligent; they'd they'd know if they went out there at night, they were safe. They could feed out on all the floodplain and eat all that all that feed. And then daylight, come daylight, they'd got to be heading back in and get into the timberline, and they were safe. And there was that thick, and there, you know, you, they couldn't couldn't get shot out or whatever. And so, yeah, we'd have to be there. The crew would get up super early, go out there, and, and be waiting on the edge of the floodplain, and then us chob fellas would get up and basically just run all the bulls into those boys. You know, all those old bulls would be coming back in. You'd have big mobs of cows and calves coming in too, filtering back into the timber, but you'd see all these old lone bulls and they're just big, cheeky fellas, ain't they? And they'd just be <laughs> like marching back in. And, and um. so, yeah, we'd just we'd go really hard for sort of two or three hours, catch everything that we could catch coming back in for that morning, and the boys would just catch them in their catches and, um, and head rope them to trees and then... Once we finished catching, I'd land and we'd go around and pick all them fellas up and um, put them on all the load trucks, take them back to the mother yard, put them on water and hay and, and just keep it doing that until we had enough for truckloads to get them back to Darwin and, and put them in spelling yards there to, to go on the boats like overseas. So that was unreal. Like Buffalo, like Normie Fisher, like the things he knew about Buffalo was next level you know and how to work them, how they think and operate. Like they're extremely intelligent. They're nothing like cattle. You can't... Can't manipulate them and bend them as much as cattle. Like you let them. If if you're on the blade of one, doesn't matter if you're in a catcher or a chopper, and, and you're trying to bend one one way. If you go a little bit too far past his nose and let him duck behind you, you let that happen once, then that fella knows. Like they'll just do it again and again, and they'll wait for you. You'll be you'll be trying to get them to bend around, and then they'll just stop on a dime <laughs> like a horse and just go straight in behind you. They're so so intelligent and strong. Like bloody just just an amazing animal, ain't? He? Um. So yeah, the fishes were experts at that um and then the croc game normally had, had um seen an opportunity I'm, I'm not sure when he first started getting eggs been doing a long time collecting croc eggs and the industry's getting really big now and basically it entailed yeah norm would would have all these little little lease country um that he was allowed in Nelsie's area to go and collect whether it was um uh, he had a few different places but i remember going out Peppinati way like um to the west of darwin around the floodplains there and then he had country back around to the east too and and you'd go out, yeah, there's three ways of getting the eggs. You could either get slung in, in a harness or whatnot with a, with an esky and a bamboo pole. And you, that was for like real thick country, like the real thick paperback country. And it was all swamps. And you would go around, find all the nests first. So you'd know, right, there's three in that area. If I sling you in here, you'd be able to get them three. Then I'll pick you up and, and get a new esky, go to the next one. So you'd sling oh, in your crap. harness. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it was um it was oh proper cool. Normally you'd sort of put you I don't know you might be five meters from the nest. Sometimes you'd have to go right onto the nest, but you'd always try and spot the female or get an idea of of where you could work your way in and work out where the female was because it's just so dangerous. You got to be onto it, you know. So we'd we'd sneak our way in there. We'd be able to see the nest when we got dropped in. Sometimes you're on the own. Sometimes you'd have two of you, so you know. There's always better having two, like one fellow to watch and another fellow to get, collect eggs and mark them. Um so that's with the harness um the other way was in a cage the cage i, I was never a fan of the cage on the floating mat uh you'd get slung slung out normally slinging in the in the aluminum cage or whatever it was there was a few different ones we had and and, and drop you on top of the nest on a floating mat and floating mats all that big swamp country with which is really deep but it has grows that grass mat and the females would rip that mat up and build a little dime nest And he'd he'd plonk you down on that nest and he'd sort of – you'd put all your weight on it and whatnot and see if it was going to break through and sink. And normally they were right. So so normally he would unhook you because it would take you sort of 10, 15 minutes to get the egg. So he'd unhook you and go and land and and you'd have a two-way. Oh, my God. And you're just dead silence and it's just – there's all water there. I've got some photos I should show you. All water and then there's swamp and the females would normally – Hopefully, they'll come up when you first got there and they'll grab the cage and shake the cage and you'd have your bamboo and you'd tap How them How this cage around you? Um, uh, It's probably like, uh, probably a, I'd say a metre by metre. I- oh, so they're like right there? Yeah, yeah, right there. Yeah, oh it's got to be God. really light. You keep it as light as you can, can yeah, because you don't want too much weight. So, yeah, you'd bluff that female off. Females are sort of, all they're trying to do is protect their nest. They're not trying to eat you. They're just trying to, you, you know, you're stealing my eggs. So, you bluff her off, chase her away, hopefully normally you'd unhook you and then you'd just sit there and you'd get them eggs and oh you're just a sitting duck eh? like a, it's dead silent you can just hear like water popping and like fish popping swimming like crocs swimming around us oh. that was my least favorite i hated doing that doing the cage stuff um and then the other way is my favorite was was when you like get around a little 22 and um you could actually go land near that nest and and walk in you know shut your machine down or just walk into that nest and that was definitely that's the one you want to be doing like you you're on foot or only in sort of shallow water and whatnot. You've got a bit of manoeuvrability and you can really take your time to assess where they are. And, and big males, if you run into big males, that's the especially in that breeding season. They're really hungry because they've they've just come. It's like, finally the wet season. They got all this water to hunt in. They're the ones like you just. If you've seen a male, you just had to either put it down or get the hell away from it because it's just so dangerous. So they're just like the. The males that are around like that 13, 14 foot, they're, they're big, like pretty big, but they're not huge. The big, big fellas are sort of more shy and being shot at over the years or whatever it was. Um, but yeah, them, them mediocre fellas were still really fast on the ground or, or in the water and just extremely territorial and savage and hungry. So they're the, they're the ones you had to stay away from in that croc game. And and same thing, like I was talking about, like Normie was just a bushman, you know, he just knew uh, cattle, buffalo and crocs, like he, and all he'd done is fly since he was a young follower and, amazing man normally end up end up um crashing the machine there in i want to say it was october last year just after i'd left with them um, out at ramo they're nearly finished they had just about to finish packing up there and, and then um yeah he put that machine down and, and crashed and died and he says buddy really rough on their family and and his two boys nathan and josh amazing young fellas ain't like the so proud of what they're doing they've taken on everything that Normie was doing and josh he's only he'd be 20 and he's flying and and he got a heap of time in with norm norm trained him up and like and, and then nath was just this a uh, freak with a catcher and, and catching buffalo on that ain't eh? like you just literally run a ball out then boys would have it within seconds you know just by knowing where to position themselves and read them you know it's just that they're on um, their elite level hey eh? and they're so young so i'm looking forward to see what they're going to do they've got an amazing future out of them so as i sit here and think back
0: On what Clancy's kind of just shared in the last hour It is an incredible, incredible story It definitely has been really emotional And something which I think in the days since I've made sure that I actually sat with And I'm I'm really looking forward to making sure That I spend the time listening back to this one Because I think Clancy's story and journey is just remarkable I think there's so much inspiration in it So this episode's been broken up into two parts That's part one Join us next week for part two of Clancy McKay.
1: See ya.